Alhamdulillah wa kafa wa salaman ala ibadihi alladhin istafa amma ba'd fa'udhu billahi min ash-shaytani r-rajim bismillahir rahmanir rahim kullu nafsin dha'ikatul maut subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun wa salaman ala mursalin walhamdulillahi rabbil alamin allahumma salli ala sayyidina muhammad wa ala ali sayyidina muhammad wa mubarak wa salam rasulullah hadith that there will come a time for my ummah when they will love five things and forget five things. There will come a time for my ummah, my community, when they will fall in love with five things and they will become forgetful of five things. They will love this life and forget the life to come. They will love this life and forget the life to come. They will love the dunya and forget the akhirah. They will love property, wealth, possessions and forget the grave. They will love mal and forget the qabr. They will forget their death. They will love wealth and forget the day of judgment. They will love their children and forget the truth. And they will love themselves and forget Allah. And they will love themselves and they will forget Allah. They have nothing due to me. They have nothing to do with me and I have nothing to do with them. In this hadith, the Blessed Messenger meant, as if this is one of the interesting hadith in the sunnah, in which the Prophet mentions initially to the Sahaba things that he, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had revealed to him, things that would become uh, prevalent in his ummah to come. This particular deed does not fall in the category of the signs of the Day of Judgment. Uh, this is not anything to do per se with the end of time, Qurbiqiyamah, the proximity of the end. It's simply something to do with the notion that, and, and however those hadith that do talk about the end of time, suggests that the Muslim philosophy of history is that human beings are going towards a spiritual decline. In other words, much of the Western philosophy of history is that human beings continually make progress. And that progress is normally me- measured on material or scientific terms. The Islamic philosophy of history, when you understand that the Hadith point to number one, or our theology points number one to the fact that this entire world will end, the dunya will come to an end, there will be a day of judgment, there will be a hereafter. And then the moment that that dunya will come to an end, there are going to be a series of events that lead to the end of this world. And those events are marked by spiritual decline or religious decline. Now within that philosophy then of spiritual decline, there are another sort of whole set of ahadith in which the Prophet mentioned uh, specific aspects in the way that he forecasted or he knew beforehand that the Ummah would decline. So in this particular hadith, again in this collection by Ibn Hajar al-Skalani, there are five things that are mentioned. Number one is that this Ummah, they will love this life, they will love the dunya, and they will forget the life to come, they will forget the akhirah. Now there are many ways to understand this hadith and what really uh, the adab or the humility or the courtesy that the Muslims always had to such hadith is that they would wonder does this hadith apply to me? In other words, they would be worried, they would be scared that am I one of those members of the Ummah whom the Prophet was worried about, about whom he predicted that they would fall into a spiritual decline. So it befits me that I should study these hadith in depth and try to see if those signs are present in me. And if those signs are present in me, then I should do my best to change them so that I am successful in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I am able to earn His pleasure, and I am not a source of disappointment to my beloved Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa on the Day of Judgment. So the first sign being mentioned here 
is that they love the dunya, they will love this life, the dunya, and forget the life to come. Now what exactly is dunya? There's a lot of people have a lot of misconception on this. Islam again being a religion, being a revealed religion, being a spiritual phenomenon, does not actually take a material definition of dunya. In other words, the dunya does not necessarily mean material objects, material goods. The dunya, basically the way we understand dunya, it's a two-part definition. Number one, dunya is ghayrullah. In order for something to be called dunya, it has to be other than Allah. And number two, it has to distract you from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in other words, dunya is simply that ghayrullah that makes you ghafil anillah, that thing which is other than Allah that distracts you from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that distraction can take place in many levels. Distracts you from his remembrance, distracts you from his obedience, distracts you from staying away from those things that he has prohibited, distracts you from the adab, the courtesy and the humility that you're supposed to have towards him, towards his revelation, towards his messengers, towards the teachings of his messenger. So dunya then does not mean necessarily having the material world. There are many people who might be financially well off who do not have hubbi dunya or love of the dunya in their heart. And there might be people who are not that financially materially well off but they have hubbi dunya in their life. Let me give you a few sort of very basic or baby examples. If a person, right, it's just an example. Uh, it's normally an example we use for a man but we will use it for you today. Uh, because I'm sure uh, there must be some women who might also uh, have this in them. But if a person is so much a fan of sports, if a person, let's take, is such a big cricket fan, that following the cricket match or watching that cricket game on television distracts them from the remembrance of Allah or distracts them from his or her obligation or duty towards Allah, then that means watching cricket is dunya. Now you'd understand what I meant that there are many people who might not be financially well off who might also have something in them which is called dunya, right? Uh, there are many people who might sit glued to a television match. Now what does this mean? One level it could mean that they're so involved in watching the match that they won't pray their salah. Or, at best, that they'll get up but they'll hurriedly pray two rakats or four rakats with the intention that they have to get back to their match immediately because they don't even want to miss a single bowl or pitch or wicket or whatever you call it. Right? That's also a type of distraction. So in other words, dunya is anything that is other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and anything, in other words, anything of this world. But in order for it to be negatively viewed, it has to be something in this world that is distracting us from the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And sometimes you have people who take the other extreme, right? Some people who adopt a path of otherworldliness to a much larger extreme. For example, I once had uh, a student who asked me this question from America that uh, she said that she wanted to leave Starbucks coffee because she felt that Starbucks coffee was dunya. And that because she was a student on this path of Tasawwuf and Tasawwuf teaches that you should not have a love for the dunya in her heart. So she felt that, well, I love my Starbucks coffee and therefore she took a custom, she took an oath to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that for 40 days I will not drink Starbucks coffee. And she completed that. And then she fell back into it and she started drinking Starbucks coffee and she felt bad. So I explained to her that drinking Starbucks coffee, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That is not dunya. Unless for some reason somehow we can conceptualize her drinking of that coffee is distracting her from Allah. There is nothing wrong with somebody being 
hooked on Starbucks coffee or PTC chai or Tropicana orange juice or cookies and cream ice cream. These things are not dunya, right? And when you look at the early pious Muslims, the mujahid that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to see, the struggle that he wants to see, he doesn't want us to bring this entire disdain for the dunya that perhaps even somebody might argue Rabia Basriya had. What Allah SWT wants us to bring is the mujahada that Rabia Basriya had, that she was regular in her tahajjud, that she had a feeling in her salah, that she made dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that she was a person of taqwa, she stayed away from sin and disobedience, she was a person of haya and modesty and chastity. These are the types of mujahada, the types of spiritual struggle that Allah SWT wants a person to do. Sometimes we even, we trick ourselves or we deceive ourselves by putting our efforts into these trivial things. So leaving Starbucks coffee is entirely trivial. In fact, at most, if you wanted to conceive of this as some type of mujahida, it would mean that drinking Starbucks coffee or not drinking that coffee should have no effect on you at all. It should just be meaningless activity that is devoid of any type of meaning. So dunya then is that thing that distracts us from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but particularly now to get back to the hadith, Rasulullah linked it to a particular type of distraction and that is again they will love this life and forget the life to come right so there will be we will be, there will be members of this ummah who we will become so absorbed in this world that we will forget the akhirah right and many times it's very difficult for a person on their own to figure out this balance what is the balance that Allah subhanahu wa or the deen of Islam wants me to keep between the quote-unquote dunya, right, which is the permissible activities of this world, and the akhirah, which is preparation for the ultimate uh, life, eternal life in the hereafter. And it's interestingly, many people even quote this dua, and the dua itself is a perfect way to understand what Allah subhanahu wa wants us to do. But the dua is misunderstood and misquoted. And the dua is something that all of you know, رَبَّنَا آتَنَا فِي الدُّنْيَا حَسَنَةً وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ حَسَنَةً وَقِنَا أَذَابَ النَّارِ Right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in this dua we're turning to our Rabb, and the way it's normally presented is that, look, Allah is touching this dua to ask the dunya and ask the akhirah. That is true, right? But that is half the story. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught us in this dua to ask for, to ask, to make dua, Rabbana atna fi dunya hasana. Right, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you of this dunya the hasanat. We don't ask you the dunya mutlaq. We don't ask of you this world in an absolute, unqualified, unrestricted way. The Qur'an al-Kareem, the dua itself is teaching us that we, to the extent that we are allowed to partake of the dunya is to the extent that we partake of the hasanat or of the noble things, the beautiful things, the virtuous things or at least the permissible things of this world. So that dua is not anywhere a license uh, that no, Allah SWT himself in the Qur'an taught us to make dua that we partake of those things that distract us from him. The hasanat of the dunya by definition are those things that do not fall under the other definition of dunya. In other words, the hasanat of the dunya are those things that do not distract us from Allah or remembrance of death or remembrance of the afterlife or remembrance of our purpose on earth or remembrance of our primal and primary identity as the ibad or the servants and slaves of Allah SWT. Those are the hasanat and Allah SWT has taught us in the Qur'an that we should ask, we should make dua for those hasanat of the dunya. And then obviously to make dua of the hasanat of the akhirah, which means the reward and the pleasure of Allah SWT in the hereafter, and also to ask for salvation uh, from the hellfire. So then that said, okay, so the first option has been removed. 
Uh, normally people say, no, Allah said, balance this world and the akhirah. No. In that sense, Allah SWT is not asking us to balance it. So in what sense are we being asked to balance this world? Basically, uh, if any one of us wants to assess or understand or discover whether we have that balance or not, we simply have to look at this hadith. And think that, okay, to whatever extent I'm partaking in this dunya, is there any way, any activity, any set of activities, or perhaps my entire lifestyle, or perhaps my entire mentality, that is distracting me from the akhirah? If we find that the dunya is distracting us from the akhirah, that means that there's an imbalance. And if there's someone who is so focused on the akhirah that they don't earn a halal livelihood, they are not fulfilling the rights of their spouses, their children, their families, themselves, the rights of society, if they find that in them, then they can say they're also imbalanced on the other side. But there are very few people like that left in this world, right? Who can, you can honestly say that they are so absorbed in the akhirah that they have forgotten their rights and responsibilities in this world. The vast majority of us fall into the first category. Right, And that means we need to take practical steps to remind ourselves of the Akhirah. To not become people who forget the life to come. This should be our fear. That the Prophet was worried about people in his Ummah who would forget five things. The first one is to forget the Akhirah. Now how is it that we can keep the Akhirah in mind, in view, while partaking of this dunya, while studying or working or whatever we do? And there are two basic things that help us to do that. The first are these are sohbah or gatherings of remembrance. In other words, and sometimes I, you know, I, I, I'm not really sure uh, once a week is necessarily enough for that, uh, but we need sometimes to pull ourselves out of the environment, of our daily environment, our daily habit, our daily routine. Because in general you will find that it's part of human nature that if you want to become a person of reflection then you have to disconnect yourself, you have to disattach yourself from your routine life. If there's a person who wants in academia to go into research, right, then that means they have to cut themselves out from teaching, they have to cut themselves off from institutional responsibilities and they have to, only when they reach a certain level of detachment will they be able to enter any level of reflection. And the deen of Islam has so many things, right? So many things that suggest this disconnection, this, this detachment from our regular life. For men, the prayer of Jummah at, at an obligatory level and for, at, for women for an optional level. Even the prayer or attending the khutbah or the discourse given at the Jummah Salah is a, a way of detaching ourselves, to take ourselves out from our work environment, from our study environment and put ourselves in the masjid. In fact, the whole philosophy of masajid, right? Uh, and that's also a very central for I me, mean, that's a whole topic perhaps another time. That's the central philosophy of our deen, right? The role that the masjid has in the Muslim Islamic religion is far more than the, even the theoretical role conceived of the church in the Christian religion or of the synagogue in the Jewish religion or of the temple in the Hindu religion. Right? The masjid is a sanctuary, is a place where people are meant to visit, is a, is a place for people to go, to disconnect themselves. Again, sometimes at some level you need five times disconnection from your life. That is why the, Allah SWT out of His generosity and mercy has prescribed five daily prayers so that we would disconnect from our daily life five times and connect ourselves to Him. So without disconnecting, it doesn't mean disavowing. We don't have to relinquish our studies, relinquish our jobs. 
But it means that there have to be moments in our day in which we disconnect from our job, from our studies, even to some extent from our families, from our home life, from our office life, from our friends. And that disconnection obviously has a parallel, simultaneous connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And that connection is called dhikr. That connection is called remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whether a person does it through formal ibadah, such as prayer, recitation of Quran, istighfar, or a person does it as a separate type of ibadah. Right? That person simply sits down and makes dhikr or remembrance of Allah. That we need that connection. The more and more we disconnect from our daily lives, and the more and more we connect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the more it will be easy for us to remember our essential purpose, and it will be easy for us to remember the akhirah. So in other words, what we need to do is really need to be the opposite of this, at least at times. In other words, we need to be people who will love the akhirah and forget the dunya. As opposed to people who love the dunya and forget the akhirah. In other words, sometimes, so it's, although it's true that in Islam there is no monasticism, you're not supposed to become entirely otherworldly. But definitely in Islam you have to become partially otherworldly. There have to be moments in your day in which your love for Allah, your love for Akhirah causes you to forget entirely the dunya, to forget entirely your mundane life. That disconnection has to be there. So there's not disavowal, but there is detachment and there is disconnection. The second thing mentioned in the hadith, right, is that they will love property and forget the grave. Uh, what that means really in a sense is that they will love their physical surroundings, their physical dwellings, right? And they will forget their ultimate physical destination, which is the grave, and then the penultimate destination is again the afterlife, right? In other words, and this is something that comes up over and over in the literature, which is called zikrul maut or remembrance of death. And sometimes literally, uh, it includes remembrance of the process of death, now, how many of us ever actually think about that, that uh, there will come a day in which I will pass away, right, from this earth. There will come a day in which people will gather around my body, some people will wash my body, some people will take my body away, my body will be prayed over, then I will be taken to a grave, a cemetery, a ditch will be dug in the ground, I will be lowered into that mud, into that soil with just a cloth or a coffin around me, and then that grave will be sealed, people will throw dirt and soil and mud over me, and then everybody will gradually walk away, and I will eventually over time be forgotten in this world. Right? Those of us even who may have parents who passed away, how often does a per- children, how often do children even go to their parents' grave? At best once or twice a year. Right? How often do children go to their grandparents' grave? Maybe once in a lifetime. How many people can say they've been to their great-grandparents' grave? So it's just a matter of time uh, before a person is entirely forgotten in this world. That nothing, uh, there will be nobody left who remembers them unless they leave a sadaqa jariya, a legacy of students, of knowledge, of scholarship. Today we still remember Ibn Hajar Askalani. Today we still remember Imam Bukhari. Today we still remember Imam Abu Nifa. Today we still remember Imam At-Tabri. But unless that we leave something like that behind us, the vast majority of us pass away, human beings pass away from this world forgotten. I have no idea what the name of my great-grandfather is, any of them. Uh, my maternal, my paternal, on any side. I have no idea what their names were. I have no idea where they lived. I have no idea what type of lives they lived. I know nothing about them. Uh, and basically that is what happens to human beings. They become forgotten. So if we ourselves are going to become forgotten by the world, then it befits us that we, while we are living, should forget the world to some extent. 
And so, then the opposite of this would be that they forget their property and, okay, I'm not going to use the word they love the grave, but they are conscious or they remain aware of the grave. And again, this does not mean that this has to be a perpetual state, that day and night a person becomes obsessive and all they do is think about their grave. But there have to be moments. There have to be moments in our life ideally frequent and we actually reflect upon this reality that one day we will enter the grave and that will be a very long-term resting place for us until we reach the day of judgment. And just like that, there doesn't have to be a disavowal of property, but there has to be a, de a detachment. You know, a very, a very off-quoted example that I've also used with you is that when a person goes on a journey and they check into a hotel room, they don't develop any love for their hotel room. Why? And they don't feel any sadness at all when they leave the hotel room. Because they know from the moment they checked in to the moment they check out that this room is not my permanent abode. This is just a temporary place to stay that I've chosen to take up. I'll be in this room three days, I'll be in this room one week. They don't fall in love with their hotel room, right? And the reason they, again, the reason they don't fall in love with the hotel room is that because they know they're going to move on. Well, just like that, then a person is not meant to absolutely fall in love, right? with their dwelling or with their home or with their room or in any physical attachment to this world. Right? Again, it doesn't mean they're supposed to hate the world or hate their room or they can't like the decoration in their room, but they're not supposed to love it. And again, specifically, they're not supposed to love it to such an extent that it distracts them from the reality that this is a temporary abode. Okay? So we're not supposed to love the dunya to such an extent that we become distracted from the reality that this world is temporary. Just like that, we're not supposed to love our physical surroundings, our physical inhabit, our habitat that much that we become distracted from the reality. That, in fact, the quite looming and absolute certain truth, right, uh, that this is just a temporary. I mean, this is a universally accepted truth. Whether you're Muslim, you're non-Muslim, you're an atheist, agnostic, there's this one thing that every human being in the history of humanity and every human being alive today agrees upon, is that everybody will die. Right? Death is a universal reality that nobody can escape. And the logical consequence of death, the, the, necessity, I mean, the necessary conclusion from that is that this world is temporary. This world is transient. Whether you think that this world ends when you die or you think something continues is a separate thing. But nobody can deny that anything that anybody has in this world is simply temporary or transient. The third thing that the Prophet mentioned in the Sadiq is that they will love wealth and they will forget the Day of Judgment. Now that's getting a bit more allegorical, right? Loving the, the dunya and akhirah contrast is understood. Here there's a notion that there's a contrast between wealth and the Day of Judgment or wealth and accountability, right? Uh, I mean literally the word here is just hisab, just judgment. Uh, it doesn't say yom al-hisab. So they will love wealth and they will forget judgment. In other words, but this means sometimes that the love of wealth that is forbidden is that if you love wealth so much that you become distracted or oblivious to the fact that you will be accountable. Accountable for how you earned your wealth and accountable as to how you spent your wealth. Right? And that happens sometimes. That if a person gets so caught up in something that they forget that this wealth is just a bounty and a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that we will be accounted for each and everything that we did with this wealth. And specifically, this can also be used to refer to the pursuit of unlawful means of acquiring wealth. For example, interest, bribery, corruption, fraud, deception, 
any type of unlawful business practice or any type of unlawful way of earning money. And, 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 and if you look at Pakistan as a society, from the top to the bottom, this society is rampant and rife with people who are acquiring wealth through unlawful means, with people who are trying, who wish, uh, they could only wish that unlawful means were more available to them or that they were more competent in unlawful methods to amass and acquire wealth. So it becomes a type of greed or a type of materialism. Okay, In this particular is where you could bring up materialism or greed, which blinds a person to the broader notion of accountability and moral responsibility that they have before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The fourth thing uh, is even more interesting, uh, that they will love their children and forget the truth. On the face value, a person might get a bit worried, right? especially women might get worried that what is this, you know, why is it that loving children has in any way uh, been linked with forgetting the truth. Again, these are not necessary linkages. What this really means is that they will love their children to an extent that their love blinds them and distracts them from the truth. So how can, what is it? What type of love, what extent is that? What type of love might one have for children? And you could take an umumi mana, you could take a general meaning of this as well, love their family members. Uh, so it could apply for spouses, it could apply for parents. So the original mahal of the hadith is children. Uh, there are many examples of that, right? Uh, I can give you countless examples of so many aunties who come to me about their children and they have so much love for their children that they gave everything to their children, they spoiled their children and they forgot to morally raise their children properly. They forgot to impart spiritual teaching to their children. And the vast majority really of the English educated classes of Pakistan of, of, of the English educated classes of Pakistan who are not religious, the vast majority of them are not quote-unquote religious because their parents uh, did not bother to teach them anything about the religion or their parents themselves were such poor role models that anybody looking at parents like that would have failed to even come up with any notion while they were growing up that there could have been anything called spirituality or anything called deen or anything called obedience and submission to Allah. But nonetheless, these people love their children. And sometimes out of love for their children, they will forget the truth, they will forget the haq. In other words, they will prefer something for their child, even if it is something perhaps that Allah subhanahu has not preferred for them. Right? They might place their children in educational institutes that might challenge the children's belief. And they do that in the name of love for their children, love for the education that that child should receive. Or they will allow their child, or even encourage their child, to go into careers, uh, such as banking, that might be unlawful uh, or prohibited, but they will do it out of love for their child, out of a desire that the child have money, their child have status. So their love for their children basically are the love, their desire for their child to have a certain respect, status, wealth, etc. in the world, sometimes makes a person forget the truth. Interestingly, not only is this mentioned in this hadith, but in fact it is mentioned in the Qur'an al-Kareem that spouses and children can potentially also be a distraction from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? That it's possible a person might out of love for their family. And again, if you relate it to the previous one, you will find people who will tell you that no, the reason I engage in corruption or bribery is for the sake of my children or for the sake of my wife or for the sake of my husband, or for the sake of my spouse, right? So their love for their family blinds them from the truth, from the reality of their existence, their purpose in this world, and basically their love for their children makes them forget the truth. Now, this does not mean if you look at the Anbiya, the Prophets, 
salam, they had the most love for their children, but they didn't forget, they didn't blind them from the truth in any way. So the love that Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, had, let's say for his sons, uh, Sayyidina Ismail salam, and Sayyidina Ishaq salam, or the love that Amma Hajra uh, had for her sons, right? is phenomenal, is much more than the love that most fathers and mothers today have for their children. right? But that love did not blind them from the truth. So in this particular case, it's not in any way suggesting that we cannot have intense love for our family. You can have an extremely intense love for your family member. It's not the degree of love that is being cautioned against, it's the kind of love. That if that love blinds us to our respect or observance of the Qur'an, Sunnah and Sharia, then that love itself can be a distraction. And the fifth and final thing, which is perhaps the most powerful, is that and they will love themselves and forget Allah. Right? So not that they will love the world over Allah, right? That not that they will love this life over the Akhirah, they will love property over the grave, they will love wealth over judgment, they will love children over truth, but they will love themselves and forget Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is really the ultimate crime. And, right, and that is why basically at the mention of that ultimate crime, the Prophet then in a state of probably emotional uh, you know, sadness over such people who could be, go so far, who could go so far in this distraction that they forgot Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then the Prophet said, they have nothing to do with me and I have nothing to do with them. And that's extremely powerful, right? And again, this is not saying that, okay, such a person becomes a kafir unbeliever, right? That has something to do with a person's belief. But if a person becomes so distant, the Prophet is saying that they have nothing to do with me. In other words, they've abandoned my mission, my message, my teachings to such an extent that they love themselves and forget Allah, that's as if they are not in my ummah. Right? So those are the first four categories that Prophet ﷺ in the beginning, right? Uh, or rather in the beginning, the Prophet ﷺ starts out by saying, My Ummah, right? So my Ummah will love five things. So all of these people, they're being counted as the Ummah. That's how the Prophet ﷺ is viewing them. But emotionally, by the time he gets done with this saying, and then he realizes that there are people who are technically in my Ummah, but they do these five things, then basically they're not in my Ummah anymore. They have nothing to do with me, and I have nothing to do with them. I have nothing to do. I mean, that's a, that's a very terrifying thing, right? That on the Day of Judgment, if any of us go before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we are in the company of the Anbiya, and Rasulullah is standing there, and he looks at us, and his emotional response is that I have nothing to do with you. You have nothing to do with me, and I have nothing to do with you. Why? Because you love this life, and you forgot the Akhirah. You love property, and you forgot the grave. You loved wealth, and you forgot judgment. You loved your children, and you let them forget, and you let that make you forget the truth. And you loved yourself, and you forgot Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Because my nisbat was with you was based on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you went that far, you allowed yourself to become so distracted. This is the ultimate distraction, the ultimate heedlessness, the ultimate ghafla. That a person becomes not just ghafl of the akhirah, or of judgment, or of the grave, but a person becomes ghafl of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself. Right? And the interesting thing that is being coupled with this is love for oneself, conceit, vanity, being self-centered. Right? And that is really, I mean, that is the exact opposite of a servant and slave. I mean, if you conceptualize what it means to be a servant and slave, a servant and slave is somebody or some person who has totally abandoned themselves. They're not interested in themselves. They have no love for themselves. They've abandoned themselves entirely in the love and service and obedience of their master, 
right? So then if a person tries to work this in the reverse, if they love themselves, then the love for oneself is going to lead a person that lead a person out of this mantle of servanthood. This actually this royal cloak of servanthood. It's not a chain, right? The Islamic concept of Ubudiyah is not the chains and shackles of servanthood. It's the garlands of servanthood. It's the royal cloak and mantle of servanthood. It's the dignified robe of honor of being the servant and slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But a person who is in love with himself will shed this robe, right? He shed this cloak. And once they do that, then they forget Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because it's very difficult, it's very difficult to remember Allah. In fact, I would argue that it's impossible to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala other than as a servant and slave. It's not possible. There's no way a person can shed their cloak of servanthood and still remember Allah. Once that cloak is shed, remembrance is impossible. It has no meaning, right? And therefore then the Prophet said that they will love themselves and they will forget Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let's take what could be possible practical examples of this. Well, uh, loving oneself also means right, loving certain things for oneself. Loving that perhaps society looks upon us favorably. Loving the fact that our friends look upon us favorably. And sometimes that value of the self becomes so high, it becomes greater than the value we accord to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the pleasure that He has for us. So for example, if we love ourselves, if we love ourselves so much, right, uh, that we, we feel that it's a must, that whatever, nobody should say anything to me, or I shouldn't be criticized in any way, or nobody should look down upon me, or what if, if I dress in a particular way, what will my friends say? What will society say? What if somebody calls me a fundamentalist? So my love for myself is greater than my love for Allah. Right? Therefore what I will do is I will simply abandon whatever Allah wants me to do and I will prefer for myself what I myself love. Right? That's what it means. It means taking our likes and giving them a greater preference over the likes of Allah. Taking our dislikes and giving them a greater preference over the dislike of Allah. And in order for a person who originally started out as a member of the Ummah, in order for a person who actually wants to please Allah subhanahu wa in some way, in order for them to do this, in order for them to do this, they have to forget Allah. It's not possible. It's not possible. I mean, like, let me give you an example. It's not possible if there's a girl who wears hijab and then she goes to a wedding. And for some reason she feels, right, that she has to take the hijab off, right, in that wedding because she doesn't want people to say anything. Or worse yet, she wants people to look uh, upon, she wants, I mean, even strangers to view her as attractive or as beautiful. Now there's no way a person can do that without forgetting Allah. There's no way you can remember Allah and then disobey Him. It's not possible, right? So what the person is going to have to do to make this exercise successful is they have to forget Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Once they forget Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then they're numbed. And when they become numb to the remembrance of Allah, then it's possible to do all types of things. Just like a person when they go into surgery, when they have anesthesia, right? They become physically numb. When they're physically numb, you can do all types of things to their body and they won't feel it. Just like that, a person voluntarily takes spiritual anesthesia. They numb themselves to the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They become, as this hadith says, forgetful of Allah. When they forget Allah, then they can do anything they want. 
right? Uh, they, when they become spiritually numb, the Sharia, the Sunnah, the Quran, what's Faraz, what's Wajib, what's Haram, what's preferred, and love for Allah, fear for Allah, these things have no meaning anymore, right? And because that person has entirely forgotten Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's a very simple thing that our nafs does, that we take Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala out of the equation. Now what is one of the, it's not the only reason, but what is one of the reasons that some people might do this, it's love for themselves, right? That I love to be a certain way. And this is exactly, right, this is exactly, and many of you have heard me use this example before, this is exactly what the people who didn't accept Islam at the time of the Sahaba had. In other words, Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab had a love for themselves. They loved themselves, they loved their way of life, they loved their lifestyle, they loved their culture, they loved their society, they loved the grandeur that they had in society, they loved their position of leadership, they loved their mistreatment of women, they loved everything about themselves. And that necessitated that they forget Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala entirely. Because if they were new, they themselves knew that if we accept Islam, then that means that we will have to become mindful and heedful of Allah, of His wishes and of His commands. And if we do that, then we'll have to leave the things that we love for ourselves. And so Abu Jahl and Abu, Abu, I mean Abu Lahab and Abu Jahl were actually, they were not people who at some level really disbelieved in Allah. Same thing with Fir'aun. And they even to some extent, I mean, our understanding is they, just like Fir'aun, knew deep down that Musa Islam was a prophet. You have clear uh, hadith that suggests that, uh, in fact the Qur'an al-Karim even suggests that the kuffar of the Quraysh and the kuffar and people like Abu Lahab and Abu Jahl recognized the truth of the prophethood. They called them as sadiq al-Amin, the truthful one, the trustworthy one. That they know you, they recognize you, they have marifat, they have deep, intimate knowledge of you. As deeply and intimately they know their own children. So they knew 100%, right? But they loved themselves. And therefore the love for themselves necessitated that they forget Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That they not accept the mission and the message of Islam, right? Uh, and that is something that all of us should take heed from, right? That really, I mean... Abu Lahab and Abu Jahl understood Islam. They understood that accepting this deen of Islam means that you'll have to change deeply, dramatically, fundamentally. That you'll have to give up the things that you might love for yourself. That you might have to change your outer appearance. You'll have to change your inner character. You'll have to change the way you associate with people. So many things will have to be changed. And because they loved themselves more, and they weren't, therefore they weren't willing to change, they didn't accept Islam. And if we accept Islam, right, then that means that we have to be willing, perhaps gradually over time through a process of learning, knowledge, study, reflection, through a process of dhikr, ibadah, worship, remembrance, du'a, asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to strengthen us, to increase us in our ability to follow the deen, but at least conceptually our understanding of the deen has to be. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I don't want you to let me be a person who loves myself, who loves my own habits, my own wishes, to an extent that I forget you. To an extent that my own being makes me forgetful of you, which is the incomplete, incomplete contradiction to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's maqsa, the purpose in creating humanity, that I did not create dinner to humanity except for my remembrance, for my worship. In other words, the very the Islamic notion of humanity is ideally Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has endowed human beings with, with such an incredible power that everything about them can be an act of remembrance and an act of worship. 
But if a human being becomes so self-centered and they forget the divine, they forget Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they lose themselves in the mundane or their own wishes, their own desires, their own nafs, then they can become the exact opposite. They can be entirely forgetful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these are five things that our beloved Messenger sallallahu counseled us or warned or predicted again that there will come a time for my ummah when they will love five things and forget five others. Number one, they will love this life, this dunya and forget the life to come, forget the akhirah. Number two, they will love property and forget the grave. Number three, they will love wealth and forget judgment and accountability. Number four, they will love their children and forget the truth. And number five, they will love themselves and forget Allah. And for such people, Rasulullah and again, this is rahmatullah alameen. This is the mercy unto the world. This is, uh, this is the Prophet who was, who lowered the wing of his humility to the Sahaba, who used to make so much dua for his ummah, who used to weep into hajjad for the people in his ummah who would come after him. Even such a kind and merciful and loving Prophet. At the end, somebody who fell into all these five things, even for then the Prophet was forced to say, that they have nothing to do with me, and I have nothing to do with them. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala save us, for some, save us from such a fate. May He save us from such a fate, absolutely. But may He also save us from such a fate, even partially. وَآخِرُ دَعْوَانَا أَنْ الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ رَمْنَ Allahumma <laughs> <laughs> اللهم إنا نسألك حبك وحب من يحبك اللهم إنك عفون كريم تحب ولا فاقف عنا اللهم إنا نسألك جنة الفردوس بغير حساب اللهم إنا نعوذ بك من النار يا الله يا رب كريم Ya Allah, we ask you, Ya Allah, to always, Ya Allah, we ask you, we are grateful to you, Ya Allah, we express our gratitude to you for making us amongst the Ummah of Rasulullah Wasallam. Ya Allah, we beg of you to grant us the ability to do qadr of being a member of this Ummah, to honor and to attach great value and importance to this great blessing that you have given us by making us come with the Ummah to Mustafa Wasallam. Ya Allah, we ask you to forgive us for our sins, Ya Allah, we have wronged ourselves, we have allowed ourselves to become distant from the mission, message, and teachings of your beloved Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Ya Rabbi Kareem Ya Allah we ask you out of your mercy and your forgiveness Ya Allah to forgive us for all of our sins and transgressions this day Ya Allah forgive us for the heedlessness with which we have treated your Quran and Sunnah forgive us with the neglect in which we have treated your message and your prophecy Ya Rabbi Kareem Ya Allah forgive us for failing to try and to strive to learn the golden words and the blessed teachings of our Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Ya Allah Ya Rabbi Kareem Ya Allah we ask you we beg of you 
you. Ya Allah, to drown each and every one of us in the sunnah. To drown each and every one of us in love for the sunnah. Ya Allah, to open up our hearts and our eyes to the beauty of the sunnah. Ya Allah, we ask you to enable each and every one of us to believe and to to perceive Rasulullah sunnah, each and every one of his actions and sayings as an uswatul hasana, as a beautiful and noble example for us to emulate. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to keep us in this ummah and this world. And Ya Allah, we ask you to raise us amongst this ummah on the day of judgment. Ya Allah, we ask you to save us from all of the pitfalls that this ummah may face. Ya Allah, we ask you to face us, save us from all of the pitfalls that we may face in our deen. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to take away from us that love of the dunya that is harmful for our deen. That love of the dunya that distracts us from the akhirah. And Ya Allah, we ask you to replace that with a remembrance of the hereafter. A yearning for the hereafter. A desire to prepare for the hereafter. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we beg of you to make the akhirah the focus of our goals, the focus of our outlook, the focus of our intentions. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to save us from being distracted from the love of uh, property. And we ask you to remind us and make us reflect upon our imminent reality and the imminent reality of death and our eventual re- re- residence in the grave. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to save us from the adab of the grave. We ask you to save us from the constriction of the grave. Ya Allah, we ask you to put light where there is darkness. We ask you to put space where there is where there is constriction. Ya Allah, we ask you to make us amongst those people whose grave is made into a garden from amongst the gardens of Jannah. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to give us the ability and the strength and the willpower to make use of the asbab, to make use of the means that would make our du'as come true, to enable us to make the sacrifice, to make the struggle, to put in the effort to reform and change our lives so that there are resting place in the grave is one that is one of peace as opposed to one of torment. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you, Ya Allah, to save us from that love of wealth that becomes a distraction from judgment and accountability. Ya Allah, we ask you to take away any unlawful greed or lust that we may have in our hearts. Ya Allah, we ask you to replace us with a generosity uh, and generosity for others in our heart. Ya Allah, we ask you to replace it with a contentment with whatever you have given to us in our heart. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you that you do not let our children or our family or any associations that we have be in any way a distraction of our obedience and our love for you. And Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to save us from our own selves. We ask you to save us from our own nufus. We ask you to save us from our own pettiness, our own fancies, our own whims, our own desires, our own hawa. Ya Allah, we ask you to save us from falling into so much neglect of you that we are included that our names are written amongst the ranks of the forgetful ones that our names are written amongst the ranks of those who have forgotten you Ya Rabbi Kareem that our names are written amongst the ranks of those whom the Prophet declare that they have nothing to do with me and he has nothing to do with us Ya Rabbi Kareem we ask you to save us from having our names written in those ranks Ya Allah truly perhaps in all likelihood all of our names have already been written in those ranks Ya Allah we ask you to erase our names from those registers Ya Allah, we ask you to decree for us and to ordain for us a successful life in terms of our deen. Ya Allah, we beg of you to return us to the origins of our ubudiyat. Ya Allah, we ask you to enable us to become people who are people of detachment from this world, people who are able to disconnect ourselves from this world. Ya Allah, people who are able to join ourselves in completely and exclusively to, to your remembrance, to your dhikr, and to your ibadah, and to your worship. Ya Allah, Ya Allah, we ask you to grant us all those things that are good in this world, all those things in this world that will lead us to you, that will increase us in our love for you and our gratitude towards you, that will increase us in our remembrance of you and our worship to you and Ya Allah we ask you to keep us away from and to keep away from us all of those things in this world be they 
be they material objects, be they personal relations, Ya Allah, all of those things that distract us from you, that will lead us away from you, or that will lead us towards your displeasure. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to increase us in our hearts, in our love for you, in our fear for you, in our adab for you, in our awareness of your azmat and your majesty, and an awareness and our remembrance of your mercy and your your rahmah and your mercy. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to shower your special mercy upon us. Ya Allah, we are amongst the weak and sinning servants of this Ummah. Ya Allah, we have come in a time, in an age in which each and everything around us in our society, Ya Allah, is a challenge to our deen, is a challenge to your word, is a challenge to your beloved messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And to counter that challenge, Allah SWT, we have the weakest of imams in the history of this Ummah. So Ya Rabbi Kareem, we need your special rahmah, your special mercy. Ya Allah, we ask you to increase us in fortitude, increase us in our sabr, increase us in our ilm, increase us in our amal, increase us in our ikhlas, increase us in our taqwa. And Ya Allah, enable us to follow the entire Qur'an, Sunnah, and Sharia. Ya Allah, open up the realities, the haqqaiq and the ma'arif. Open up the realities and subtleties of the Qur'an and Sunnah for us. And Ya Allah, save us from falling into all delusions, illusions, traps, and deceptions. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, those of us who may have any difficulty, those of us who are sick, we ask you to grant us health. Those of us who may be needy, we ask you to grant us the most purest and noblest forms of wealth. And Ya Allah, those of us who have little or no worries, who have no other worry or than their own laziness or their own neglect of the deen, Ya Allah, we ask you to enable us to overcome our laziness. Ya Allah, we ask you to give us the strength of power, the willpower, the strength, the determination, the ability to become people of struggle, effort, hardship and sacrifice. And Ya Allah, and through those, through that mehna, through that mujahidah, that you draw us closer to the path of your pleasure, draw us further along in the Sirat al-Mustaqim, that you keep us on the Salat al-Mustaqim keep us forever from even going slightly astray or keep us forever from doing anything that would even slightly incur your wrath and your anger Rabbana taqabbal minna innaka anta samir alim wa tubu alayna innaka anta tawab al-Rahim wa sallallahu ta'ala ala habibihi sayyidna Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in bi rahmataka ya arhamar rahimin